Today, we're talking to Greg Elfrink, the Director of Marketing for Empire Flippers. Uh, and again, this is like continuing our little series here on exiting your business. And what a great conversation. Uh, just, I mean, not only do we talk about the way that Empire Flippers helps you sell or buy a business, uh, but he also threw in some really cool tactics for FBA sellers in terms of SEO. Uh, some some things that we really didn't think about uh, previously that we're going to be implementing. It was a, he he was a great guy to talk to. Yeah, his backstory is pretty cool too. He's over there in Vietnam, and and the little tip he gives on creating links to your Amazon listing to kind of help increase organic ranking. Really, really good. Really, really smart tip. So, yeah, definitely a lot of knowledge and somebody mm. we should probably bring back on. Oh yeah, we'll bring him back on. Just maybe even just talk about those SEO tactics, but. Let's jump into our conversation about Empire Flippers with Greg Elfrink. What's up, everyone? And welcome to episode 210 of Two Amazon Sellers and a Microphone, brought to you by Solozo. And uh, today we're going to continue the conversation of um, ways that you can exit your business. Um, and we are very excited. We've got Greg Elfrink, the Director of Marketing for Empire Flippers, on with us today. What's up, Greg? How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Hopefully, I'll be able to add some value to the audience here. Oh, yeah. Well, we're excited. Uh, you know, the space is, is just crazy right now in terms of, uh, I, I always say this, but Chris and I started a long time ago, a long time in our lives, 2014. Um, you know, we started the concept of selling was not even in our minds. Like we were just trying to make, create a cash flow business to support our families. And there's, you know, now it's like you, you can start with the mindset of trying to sell your business in a year and a half, two years. Uh, so the, the, and there's a lot of players in the space, there's aggregators, there's brokers, there's marketplaces to, to list your, uh, business on. So we're excited to dive into this because we're trying to present a lot of different options to our audience um mm. of what's going on but before we get into all that we want to learn about you we talked a little bit beforehand we've you've got a really interesting story at least where you're living uh for sure <laughs> uh, your journey uh so take a few minutes and just uh introduce yourself tell us your background how you got into this space to begin with what you're doing before and then a little bit about what empire flippers in and then we're is and then we're going to dive into our conversation sure sure so uh, I'm in Vietnam. I am a digital nomad that travels around the world. I, I fell in love with Southeast Asia. So I've been out here off and on for about six years now. Uh, before I joined EF, I was an oil field roughneck in Alaska, like literally mixing chemicals, wearing a rubber Darth Vader suit, uh, covered in all sorts of very bad for you kind of dust. <laughs> it was terrible. Uh, so I worked in the Arctic Circle up there, uh, you know, very, very cold, like the ocean freezes, right? Um, so when you said earlier, like how you guys started your business as cash flow for your family, one of the things it was funny, I was in a meeting with a private equity uh, office uh, and a family office a little while ago, and they looked at the three directors at EF, our director of operations, director of sales and me. And they were asking our background. The other two guys, they had like great resumes. And mine was like, I'm an oil-filled roughneck. I, well, I better come up with something better than this. You know? <laughs> so I, I, you know, I thought about it. And I'm very similar to what you said about yourself. And like, I am the target market of Empire Flippers in a lot of ways. Like the people I market to are like me. Like they started these side hustles. They, well, they wanted to change. They wanted to do something different, really, you know, 
change things up for their own life, uh, freedom, manifest destiny, all that kind of stuff, right? So I taught myself internet marketing while I was on the rigs, like 12, 18 hours a day. I would do freelance writing. Uh, I would you know, come write all these plumbing articles because my first clients were these SEO agencies who had plumbers for clients and roofing clients. I wrote so much about roofing shingles and plumbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward, I built up a big portfolio and ended up joining EF. Almost didn't think I got the job actually because uh, Justin, one of the co-founders, he sent me this email that was like, you know, one of those like spam kind of emails, like just like mass rejection. And then at the end, he was like, just get in, you're hired. Like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I ended up uh, coming to Vietnam from there. And uh, the cool thing about Empire Flipper is like what you said, like how much things have changed. So we were one of the, if not the original person to sell Amazon businesses. Because I, I still remember back in 2016 when we started selling them, Amazon was like, you cannot do that. That is fraud. I'm like, no, 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 Amazon. You definitely can do it. This is not fraud. They're selling their business. They're like, you can't sell accounts. Like, okay, we're, but we're not selling an account. We're selling the business. <laughs> so we actually worked with Amazon way back in the early days uh, before they even knew you could sell Amazon businesses. That's it's, it's Yeah, you guys were the first. You, I remember back in the day entertaining uh, an exit. Uh, I just, I, I didn't do it. I probably should have looking back on it. Uh, but I remember having a call and you were one of the first, I think I heard it on a podcast or something, but the idea of like, oh, you could sell this actually. Like, I didn't realize that that was a thing when we started. We were just starting to sell and trying to make some cash. And then all of a sudden, people were like, hey, well, you could actually sell this asset and, and yeah. get a good little cash out on top of what you've already earned. Um, but yeah, you guys were one of the, the first. And now there's just, there's all, you, you kind of open so the door, many right? Now, yeah. There's so many. <laughs> yeah. there, there, it's funny. Uh, I, rem- I think this was 2017. It's still really early days of selling FBA businesses. We had this prospect. It was uh, like a $400,000, $500,000 business, something like that. And uh, they're like, why should I go with you over this other competitor? It was like another broker or whatever. So our salesperson went to their website and it had like the business models that they sold and it said Amazon FBA coming soon. So you like screenshotted that and sent it to them. Like, well, this might be one good indicator why you might choose us. over <laughs> Like, it looks like this isn't even rolled out yet. <laughs> <laughs> what year did but, you uh, yeah. What year did the Empire Flippers launch? Oh, uh, the, the uh, 2011 would be uh, when we launched, but we weren't exactly a broker back then. We we were a myriad of different things back then, selling like strange services, like WordPress services, WordPress plugins, uh, really anything we could. That's how EF started. Uh, Justin and Joe, the, the co-founders, they were building their own websites, like monetize their affiliate and display advertising mostly, mostly display ads, like Google AdSense. Mm-hmm. And they started selling them on Flippa and they were blogging about this whole journey while having an outsourcing company. And uh, eventually what happened through content marketing, which is my background, we built this audience and our audience were like, hey, how about you just sell my site for me? Cause you already have an audience, you're selling stuff so quickly. And they were like, that's a dumb idea. We can make way more money selling our own stuff. But we eventually started selling their stuff. Then we realized, oh, we were the dumb ones. They build way better businesses than us. <laughs> so, like we started making a lot more money from brokering. And uh, we eventually evolved into our own marketplace. And now we're, uh, uh, I, I'd say we probably are the largest curated marketplace in the world for online businesses now. And we are very similar to an M&A advisory. In fact, I just went through a more traditional M&A advisory process. They're horrible. <laughs> They're not great. They're very antiquated in terms of what they do compared to us. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's kind of the evolution in a nutshell. I forgot about Flippa. 
I did too. And he said flip I was like, oh, flip I've never flip <laughs> In the ancient days of yore of the internet world. <laughs> I remember flip I just immediately looked it up real quick. I was like, I forgot about them. Um, uh, and also you brought up, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, this is just part of, part of my journey. It's like, I was doing everything uh, to make side hustle money. I was doing like affiliate sites, you know, writing, you know, building websites, writing blogs, you know, attaching affiliate links to it, uh, yeah. all of that stuff <laughs> back in the day. And that's how I remember Flippa um, to, to, to do that. And then I, I remember the coming, you know, Empire Flippers come along and I was like, oh, this, there's a way that I could build these and sell them. Of course I didn't. I got involved in FBA and <clears throat> that got more exciting and a lot more cash. <laughs> and, right. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> May, that's maybe because I did FBA a little better than I was doing uh, content uh, production for affiliate marketing. But yeah, I mean, it, this is interesting. And I, we talked about this beforehand, but we we just had um, yesterday, Ben Leonard, he's a, a, a broker, uh, econ brokers was on uh, talking about the space uh, and the different, you know, avenues that sellers can go. Uh, obviously, he was uh, very pro his method uh, of being... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, being on, on the side of the, of the seller representing their interests, trying to find every way to, to make the business potentially more attractive to, to buyers, structuring deals that made sense for the way that, you know, the, 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 buy, the seller wanted to look, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways you can structure deals, whether, you know, whether you're getting cash up front or whether there's, you know, delayed cash payments based on the performance of the business moving forward um you know making sure everything's valued properly what how does the process of of empire flippers work let's walk through that first and then i think we'll have a lot of questions uh, about this sure so we are pretty different even from other brokers in the way we do it so your average broker will do like assign you one person typically. And that one person does like everything, like your profit and loss statement, uh, all the, you know, the perspectives, the packaging, the vetting, the marketing, everything, sales, negotiation. Uh, the way EF does it, we're more process-based. So we've broken everything down into its own little assembly line of departments. So for example, my team on uh, the marketing team are the people promoting both the brand, but also the listings on the marketplace, right? Uh, and then we have a whole vetting team that their only job is to get your business in the most presentable way uh, and actually approve it. And since we reject, I think around 94% of businesses that get submitted to us, like just you getting on the marketplace is a pretty solid uh, uh, you know, badge of honor in a sense for your business because we reject the vast majority of them. And once you're on the marketplace, that's when my team comes back into the into the mix, doing mostly behind the scenes email marketing kind of stuff, which like that sounds very simple, but it's quite complex, actually, with all sorts of triggers, segmentations, all that kind of stuff. And our sales team is also starting to reach out to our buyer network and our sales team is split. So we have a seller, a seller sales team that does most of the exit planning for the entrepreneur. And then we have the buy side sales team. And they have uh, relationships with, say, aggregators, private equity, family offices, uh, high net worth individuals, and so on and so forth, right? So those two teams then will come together to help you structure the best possible deal. Once that is actually done, that's when we do one thing that pretty much none of the other brokers do, uh, which is the actual migration. So we have a whole department just dedicated to transferring that asset over successfully. And the reason why most brokers don't do it, if your audience is curious, is because of liability issues. It's a very easy to mess this up. And that is a, 
just an area most brokers don't want to play in. But we do it because we think, you know, this is like literally the most important part. If this doesn't get, if this doesn't transfer, that like everything was for not, right? So we want to be there to help them do that. And then we also manage the actual earn out payments and stuff like that, the deal structure. Let's let's start with that last part. Then I want to go back. Um, sure. Who in that transferring of the asset portion? That's that's after the deal's done, right? I mean, you're the deal's done. The the as the business has been purchased. Now you're trying. So who who owns that liability if something goes wrong? Is it the buyer? Is it the seller? Is it the broker? Where where is that? Like if something did happen where there was an issue. How does that affect the, the deal that's already been made? Yeah, so I'm obviously not a lawyer, but the answer would be probably a hybrid between all three. Like pragmatically speaking, there's probably mistakes made on all sides. Uh, some sides might have made bigger mistakes than others, but uh, it, I would imagine it's be, it would be between the three. How that actually works out, uh, like if someone went the legal route, obviously that depends on a multitude of crazy factors. But uh, we do as mainly as a, a quality assurance, both to protect the seller and the buyer. So, for example, if someone buys a business from us, they wire us the money, like say it's a, a million dollar deal, something like that. They wire us the money. Uh, we hold on to that money. We don't give it to the seller yet until the deal is fully migrated over to that buyer and two weeks have passed, which is called the inspection period. And during that period, it's kind of like the last minute uh, check uh, to make sure that we didn't miss anything, that the seller didn't uh, advertise something that they weren't, and the buyer can give us the A-OK, okay, like, yes, everything looks good, release the money. And if, like, let's say things didn't go good, say uh, the business fell by 50% of uh, reported earnings, the, the monthly net profit, the cash flows, right? Well, then the buyer can either renegotiate or reverse the deal completely back to the uh, to the seller, right? So it's like, a bit of buyer protection, which of course sellers hate because they want to get the deal done right away, but buyers love because they don't want to be screwed. So it's like an added layer of protection. And of course, if you have a quality business, you don't usually have to worry about this at all, barring a black swan event, right? But uh, that, that's the basics of it. How, how common is that process throughout the industry? Like with aggregators or other brokers, are they doing a- Migrations? A, yeah, like the that, sim, that a similar process where you're holding the, the cash temporarily just to make sure everything goes through sending it over I mean, that that structure is that fairly common mm -hmm. in the industry or is that something unique to what you're doing as far as brokers go i don't know anyone that does migrations uh usually a broker like after the deal is done is like okay go ahead work with each other to make it happen <laughs> and like just kind of leaves you on your own to go do it now uh there might be other brokers that do migrations now but for the vast history of me being in this industry for over half a decade there's no one else that does it there might be someone now and i might just not be aware of it but uh yeah i don't know anyone who does it. as far as aggregators go usually the way a private deal would be done they would hold the money in escrow and they would have all sorts of different processes and there's probably more traps in that for an average seller which we can go into because you know most aggregators are very savvy when it comes to m a deals and most sellers are very not savvy when it comes to m a deals because let's face it you know selling a business is what i call a highlight moment in your as like a highlight event right it's not something that happens every day for you but like even a prolific business seller like maybe you're selling a business once every two years versus uh you know someone like an aggregator whose background is m a finance a lot of the times 
they're doing deals every single day, right? Like they're not buying deals every day, but they're looking at deals all the time. They're in negotiations all the time. They just have way more reps on the basketball court than the sellers. So that can lead to a lot of disadvantage to the seller when it comes to uh, private sales. Not always. Uh, I'm not trying to cast them in bad light. Sometimes it's great to go private, especially if you want to go fast. Uh, I think that's probably the fastest way is to go private. Interesting. Let's let's go back to the what you you had a, a roadmap that you went through of, of the journey for this uh, this process. But you said that you typically reject a seem like a high majority of mm -hmm. the, the businesses that are presented to you to go on the marketplace. What what are the reasons for that? What are what like are they not hitting certain metrics? What what is it that causes you guys to reject a business from going onto your marketplace? Sure. So there's a few different things uh, for e-commerce entrepreneurs specifically. And, and this is like broader, most entrepreneurs too, but I think e-commerce especially suffers from this because it's, I, I would wager a little bit more complicated for them than other business models. And that's their profit and loss statement. This is almost always wrong when we get it from an e-commerce entrepreneur. Um, you know, it, it's like broad strokes could be trending in the right way, but what we'll do is we'll rebuild that entire PNL from scratch and sometimes that entrepreneur realizes like, oh shit, I'm making way less money than I thought, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. And so they now, they, now the valuation is not going to hit where they thought. They're like, well, let me go back here and fix some stuff. So that would be like a, a rejection by seller, right? The seller is rejected and we understand like, okay, cool. Let's uh, team you up with our exit planning team to help you get back on track, come back in like six months when you hit that hit these like metrics right uh what they want for their valuation so that that'd be one example uh other things that can happen is steep declines uh stockouts can be really dangerous to a business um you know a lot of times stockouts are so bad that a buyer won't even look at it so that's something we're looking for uh having too many SKUs for too little too small of a business is a bad bad trap like if you have a, a you know very small FBA business, a uh, you know one hundred fifty thousand dollar FBA business, you have a hundred SKUs, like that's a lot to manage or not a lot of return, right? So these are things we look for. Um, of course, there's gray areas too, like uh, CBD, anything with CBD and hemp stuff like that. We won't we won't sell traditionally just because it's such a gray zone on Amazon. But those are those are some of the hallmarks. Another one that can be quite common is um, experimental marketing that is too close to the point of selling the business. So like if you're three months out from selling a business, you probably don't want to go launch your new product that's untested. That's going to sap away all your free cash flow and thus hurt your valuation most likely. And it's not going to do anything to increase your valuation because it's not enough time to really ramp it up to where it could be. Uh, same with like experimental ad campaigns. It's not fully optimized. So we, we tried to get people to stop all that at least like six months before the sale of the business. So it sounds like it's, it's not necessarily like a permanent rejection. It's just more, no, of, yeah. more of you, you need to get these things in order first before this is going to be potential for sale. So like what percentage of the people that get initially rejected end up coming back on and selling through you guys? Yeah. I mean, if it's rejected, like what I said there and there's no nefarious, I, I, I would wager between uh, 60 and 75% of people come back to us over, you know, a period of a few months or maybe a year or down the road or something like that. And, and I think that's one of our things. And, uh, that I, that I really love that we do is that like, we will tell a seller like, look, yes, you, we could list this. You have a quality business, but I really think you shouldn't list this because you can get a lot more money if you do, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then come back to us at a later date. Like, 
like we would love the revenue obviously right away um because who knows if they'll ever come back to us of course but it's the right thing to do in the end um and that's what uh we like to consider ourselves as like even our salespeople, they're not really selling they're more like coaching and consulting right to try to help you get the best deal for what you built and sometimes uh, that is the right move is like hold off for a little bit longer not always but uh in these scenarios it usually is it's so interesting uh I know. i'm looking at the site now there's a there's a price here and i love that you're just very transparent like it shows all the pending sales it shows the actives it shows the new ones uh there's a one here for 30 million it, it says pending sale uh massive a company you know 780 SKUs, five trademarks like this is a this is a massive deal how long does it take to close a deal like that like by the time they listed uh, by the time it closes like what's the time frame so there, there's weird things that happen uh it, that you would think would be intuitive aren't actually not real so the bigger the business like over 10 million dollars the faster it will likely sell uh than say uh you know a one to five million dollar business in fact the hardest uh price point to sell a business in that we have seen so far at least is between the five hundred thousand and one million dollar range because it's just slightly too small for private equity family office and like mm -hmm. aggregators to look at for it to be interesting and it's like slightly too big for like the bootstrapped entrepreneur where like throwing out seven or fifty thousand dollars is a big <laughs> ask for their nest egg usually so like that's tends to be the hardest business to sell but as you go higher up it actually gets easier to sell uh and anything underneath a hundred thousand dollars is very quick to sell usually but once you get above ten million dollars there's an interesting thing that happens where there's all sorts of financing options that are now available that aren't there at the lower end and you are dealing with people with a lot of money where say uh you know 10 20 million dollars represents a drop in their overall money raise bucket right so like even if you have a 30 million dollar one product only business there's a confluence of people competing for you uh and that's something we are really good at that uh aggregators uh Aggregators love us, but they also hate us because we make them compete against each other so much, <laughs> which is great for the seller, not great for them. But uh, but yeah, the higher it goes, the often the easier it is to sell as long as the business is still quality. That's that's the core fundamental. What uh, of the businesses that you sell, like what's the breakdown of like how many end up going to aggregators? How many of them go to like family businesses and you know private mm -hmm. equity? What how how does that breakout look is it all over the place yeah uh it's a good question so anything over seven figures will most likely be an aggregator but the thing is like private equity and aggregators they kind of like walk hand in hands because usually it's the private equity funding the aggregator so like the investment mandate of the private equity person rolls down into the aggregator sometimes a private equity or family office will have an op like a dedicated uh operator like have you ever heard of uh you guys know what a search fund is uh -uh. I don't think so. No. So, so a search fund is a very interesting concept that is kind of like an aggregator, but different. It's been around a lot longer than aggregators. So basically what it is, is like, say I'm an MBA finance student from the school of Wharton, you know, something like that. Some very high finance, very, uh, you know, esteemed school. And I don't want to go into high finance myself. I want to become an entrepreneur. So what I'll do is I'll reach out to all my connections in private equity and tell them like, hey, let me go be your bird dog basically to go find you deals. Because the thing with private equity, they want to buy solid businesses, but they don't run them. They need people to run the business for them. So what the uh, private equity firm will do, they'll hire them as, as a search fund. 
put all this money into the search fund, pay them a nominal fee, say 50, 70K a year, something like that. Well, they will hunt across the country for a good business. They'll find a business, give it to the private equity. They'll do due diligence together. The private equity will give that person the money to buy the business. So now they own like a large portion of equity in the business, say like 30, 40% and private equity owns the rest. So private equity is like a win-win. Like we got someone to do all the groundwork for us for pretty cheap. And we got someone that we can trust to run this business because we like vetted him very hard. So sometimes you'll get a search fund kind of situation like that. And aggregators are kind of like almost a modern take on that for the internet age because usually a search fund will be buying one business that's like, you know, 10 million and up. Because uh, again, like it's not as interesting if private equity is under, if it's underneath 10 million. But the aggregators are kind of a, a hybrid because they're like, hey, let me build a search fund for one business model like Amazon FBA. And now they're buying up all of these businesses, rolling them up into one giant brand that's worth a lot more uh, than the sums of those parts, right? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, interesting. We got uh, we got a couple of questions coming in here, actually. Chris, you want to pull those? Oh, cool. Let, let's yeah, here. Cool. I'll take the I'll take the branding off here, Chris, and you can pull that question in. All right, from Ruben. Hi guys, is there any rule of thumb you have when buying on revenue side or profits? What's your thoughts on that? Interesting. I, I think he's mean. Uh, I don't quite understand your question, Ruben. If you're talking Sounds about like, like it's like a high revenue company and they're just launching a lot of products and maybe their profits aren't as high as they yeah, should be I, because there's just so many products. Yeah, that, that, that's what I think you're saying as well, Ruben. Like, I would be very careful buying a business based on revenue at all. Like, most businesses are bought with uh, SDE, which is seller discretionary earnings or EBITDA, which is very similar to SDE. They're almost exactly the same, but EBITDA is usually used for bigger businesses. And that's earnings before interest, taxes, and uh, amortization. I almost always say appreciation, that's amortization. <laughs> but uh, so that's based off net profit. And net profit is important for you as a business buyer because that shows the business has traction and real like staying power with it, that it can be ran sustainable. And that is like, in my opinion, I don't know this for a fact, but this is just my view. Like one of the reasons why most businesses fail is because they cannot create sustainable traction. And that's one of the huge benefits of buying a business because you're already through the startup phase. If you're buying something based on pure revenue that doesn't have a lot of profit, you are basically still buying something that's in that startup phase. And that's a lot more dangerous. Not saying it's not a, you know, a terrible idea. It's just more dangerous. The only uh, business model that is routinely sold based on revenue, and they use a, a growth model, which most businesses don't use a growth model, would be something like SaaS, software as a service. But in general, I would try to avoid buying things based on uh, you know, a revenue valuation. He has another question, Chris. Let's let's yeah, uh, there it is. One real quick. Have a question regarding sellers who are in a range of two hundred to three hundred k a year. What is the pool of candidates that are in that price range? I think you touched on that so, earlier. Yeah, okay. yeah. See here, let me pull my calculator. So three, say three hundred k. I'm assuming that's profit annually. I always work in my head in monthly because the way we're set up, twenty five thousand. So let's say thirty five. Yeah. So yeah. So this would be in that range I was talking about, that five hundred million dollar range. So the pool of candidates here, there's there's a few of them. There are the bootstrap entrepreneurs that I talked about before, and typically almost every buyer in that space are going to lowball the seller in some shape or form because usually they don't like 
either they just simply don't have a lot of money, so they have to do a, a deal structure to mitigate risk, which we can talk about with buyer strategies. Mitigating risk is one of the most important things. That's why buyers should really be obsessed with deal structure. But um, other times, it's the reason why they'll lowball the sellers because they know that the seller doesn't have a big pool of buyers at this phase, right? So the seller is more likely to give in to a, uh, a more advantageous deal structure to the buyer, just knowing that there's not that many candidates. So if you're if you're looking at buying a business, in this range and you have uh, proper funding, I would say you can get the best deals in terms of multiples in this range. If you're the seller, I would highly recommend like in the numbers you gave uh, at 300K, you'd be you'd, that's like a valuation around eight or $75,000. I would really push yourself to try to get above the seven figure range before you sell ideally. Now, if you need the money right away or if you have an opportunity, I wouldn't take that advice. But if you're okay with waiting, I would try to get above the seven figure valuation when you're there. So typically multiples are increasing the higher the valuation of the business. Is that what I'm hearing from you? That is typical. Yeah. Um, so there's a confluence of events that uh, does that as well. Like as your business goes up uh, the value chain, especially above the seven figure range, that's like a really big threshold for your multiple to have a bump because there's so much more demand for those businesses. So that just inherently creates more value in the 500,000 to a million dollar range. There isn't a very big bump from what came before it. So that that's why I suggest trying to get above that seven figure valuation. And what are you seeing in terms of multiples right now? Are they increasing, decreasing sure. flat? Like what, what are those and what, What's a multiple? And as a buyer, can I say, you know, I, I don't want to, or as a seller, I don't want to go 38x. I, I think my business is worth 50x or something. Like, can I control that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just going to load up my uh, industry report here. We do, we just created this like real time Google Data Studio of everything that sells on our marketplace. Uh, that's all that kind of data on. So I'll wait for it to load. But to answer your question, uh, yes, you can control that to a degree. Now, if you go private, obviously you can say whatever you want. Uh, if you go with us in vetting, what we'll do is we'll tell you like, okay, look, this is what we call your typical valuation based off of, based on our actual sales data. This is like the best range for you between like 35 and 37 X. And they're like, okay, well, I want higher than that. Right. Cause everyone wants higher. I will tell them like, okay, uh, this is what we will call the absolute top valuation. So we have a range, an absolute bottom and an absolute top. That if a seller for whatever reason wants to go outside of the typical, we have a range that is like a possibility there that we think is still doable. Uh, and we'll tell them that and say like, hey, look, you know, I wanted to be 80x like, OK, well, then you probably shouldn't use us because <laughs> like, <laughs> like we're not going to get it. For you. Uh, and th this is one of the other things that's a big difference between uh, broker, uh, brokers and a lot of other brokers and us, not all brokers, of course, but some brokers, they'll tie in a seller who has this dream of having a Silicon Valley style exit. And that's all it really is. It's a dream for most e-commerce stores. Uh, and they'll like, like, yeah, yeah, come in. We'll give this huge multiple. You sign the agreement with them. And now you're locked into exclusivity with them for six months. And then they just start beating you down with reality, right? Like no buyers are coming in. And eventually what happens, sellers get fatigued. And they're like, screw it. Just like, yes, I'll sell, I'll sell it for that amount. Just, just get rid of don't it. even want to look at this thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Which we do not do. We do not do that. We're very upfront about it. And our exclusivity is only two months anyways. We sell like average businesses. I think it's uh, 25 days to sell once you're on our market. So, uh, but to answer your other part of the question, so I'm looking at the report right now based on 2021 numbers. 
uh, with 106 business sold, the average sales multiple was 43.1x. And that's monthly, but uh, not uh, annual. So 43.1x. Is that increasing, decreasing? So that's an increase. Year? So in 2021, it increased by 43, 43.8% from 2020. Uh, so that's a that's a big increase, right? So there's a few things that happen there. Um, and I, I don't want to leave your audience thinking like things are going nuts with like huge valuation increases because 2021 actually did go nuts with the whole advent of the aggregators coming in. And you also had commercial real estate investors coming in selling like their apartment blocks and strip malls because of COVID. So they were also getting into the space. And then all this hype of the aggregators led to like your average investor also wanting to get in the space. So this created a huge amount of demand, right? um we're not seeing that now in 2022 at the end of q1 so multiples have stayed flat or kind of lowering from uh that 41 that i i, I just said right uh i don't so I, right now i feel like we're probably at the end of the season of the seller so like if your audience wanted to sell and get the best possible price now's the time to do it because i think in the next few months as capital markets get tighter the, the valuations might become a little bit more uh, uh, unstable. They'll still probably be really good. I don't think they're going to go like nosediving because so much of the growth of online business multiples are now at parity with say like, you know, your local business, like a, like a, a you know, a car wash or whatever, uh, which historically online business has always been much lower multiples than those. So I don't think it's going to go off a nosedive, but uh, there, if you want to get the best of the season of the seller, I, I would have some urgency to sell now. Let's let's get you want to bring these questions in, Chris, because this this might be interesting too. Um, okay, and Ruben, you may just want to reach out to Empire Flippers. Just get on a call with them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shoot me an email, Ruben. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. Got a lot of questions in here. Uh, let me pull some of these up here. Uh, kind of a longer one here. <clears throat> yeah, he's saying sorry for the confusion. I was basically interested in understanding if you reject, let's say, an account, say accounts that are only 100k a year with revenue. Uh, 100k a year revenue with 20 uh, net or the revenue does not matter as long as the net profits are stable i got you yeah so uh our minimums you have to be making uh an average uh, a 12 month average net profit of two thousand dollars per month uh, of like pure net profit on average and then like we have other criteria too but that's the like core of it as long as you're above that threshold there's a good chance that uh you know we'll look at your business seriously from the marketplace so it's not very big to meet our threshold. We saw anywhere between 80K businesses to what you guys just said, 30 million, right? So it's quite the range. <laughs> that is a range. Yeah. I like that 30 million one. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about some of the like common seller traps that you see. Sure. I mean, obviously in this space, I mean, people that are that are looking to buy, they're you buy low and you sell high. That's business. You're trying to get the best right. deal you can get if you're the buyer. Um, I'm sure there's sneaky tactics involved in that. And I'm, you know, I'm sure across the board, the huge majority of people that have just put their their sweat and tears into a business, just growing it, it you know, they they love it. It's like their child. Uh, yeah. that they're raising and now they're presenting it to the market, trying to just sell it. Um, but they are not M&A experts. Um, right. And I'm sure there's a lot of different contractual language and different deal structures that you could have done better if you knew. 
and yeah. you know you, you get stuck with them so what are what are some of these uh common seller traps that you see so real quick on the deal structure one we and this is something very it, it can happen it's not super common but it can happen so if you go private you should watch out for those if like an aggregator gives you an earnout yeah that might look really good on paper like that you can like oh i'll get paid all this extra money if the business does x well, sometimes aggregators use that terms to get you excited because they know the business has no chance in hell doing that. But you, it looks good to you. So you'll take the deal, not realizing that the buyer uh, tricked you because now they're, they just mitigated ever having to pay you that capital because your business simply won't grow to that level. That's actually a real thing that happened on our marketplace. And we stopped the seller from saying yes and protected them against that. Uh, so that's a tricky thing to watch out for. Uh, the other thing you kind of also said, Dustin, which is something I called emotional equity. So since our businesses make up 60 to 80% of our net worth, if not more, as we get to the point of selling, this is a very emotional thing. And we charge our businesses with like, you know, getting rid of my commute, staying, uh, get a, like staying home with my family, traveling the world, all this stuff, right? Like the internet gave me the ability to leave the oil field to come to Vietnam where I met my wife, right? I have a lot of emotional attachment to this stuff. And that can lead to the emotional equity thing where we value our businesses way more than it's actually worth. Like, you're like, oh, this is the next, uh, you know, $8 million deal. And the buyer like, well, according to PNL is the next like $1.5 million deal, right? <laughs> like, you know, they're using a much more colder arithmetic, which is probably more accurate than your emotional equity thing. So that's something to check out the door when you go to sell, which is really hard to do, but we coach you on that kind of stuff. Uh, the other thing, and I think this is by far the most common trap and is a very insidious one because on the surface, it sounds super correct until you dig just a little bit deeper into it. And it's what I call the off market fallacy. And this is going to sound super promotional, but I do not mean that in this way. But uh, the off market fallacy is basically the concept of I'm an entrepreneur with a, <clears throat> say, a $4 million FBA business. And I don't want to pay my six, 8% to EF or another broker to go sell my business. That's ludicrous. I'm not giving away that much of my business, right? I'm going to go do it myself. And so they go do it themselves. And the buyer, which in this case would probably be an aggregator with this example, but it happens with non-aggregators too. They'll be like, yes, of course, you're so smart for doing that because the, like we only we like we have to pay a premium. And that's really all the broker's getting is the premium. So you're very, very smart. And the seller feels great. Like, yes, yes, yes. And the real thing is the buyer is tricky the seller they like like buttering them up like you're making the right move but the thing is a buyer's only benefit to not using a broker is to get the deal cheaper which is the exact opposite of what you want that's the reason why they go and build private deal flow they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a month building private deal flow specifically that no one else will know that you're on the market uh so the thing is like when you come to a broker that the buyer knows Oh shit. Now I have to like compete against all these other buyers, which is going to drive up your price. And like just a, a two quick stories on that. Like we had a seller, uh, they got an offer, private deal, uh, $1.4 million for their uh, FBA business. And that they had like three days to decide. And this is a very common tactic in the private market where they use a sense of urgency to get you to act now because they know you're likely a solopreneur. $1.4 million, like holy shit, that could change my life, right? Uh, like that's huge. All I have to do is say yes. And I'm a millionaire in three days. That's very attractive. And so they'll use that. Uh, and most of the time people don't get a second opinion because they're overcome by the urgency, right? The scarcity of the deal. Uh, so this guy came to us, we told him like, look, we can sell for way more. And he got on the marketplace. I think it took like two weeks, two or three weeks later, we sold it for 2.1 million. Hmm. Uh, I was just in Dubai giving a speech at affiliate world. 
and I ran into one of our other customers just randomly. She had a very similar story. They offered her $600,000 and we ended up selling it for 1.6 million. So did we make commission? Of course, we we actually, like, they paid us more than they expected. Then we got a bigger commission than either of those sellers were expecting because we ended up selling the business for way more. But at the end of the day, they have way more money in their pocket. So like who really won, right? Like the seller, of course, won. Like uh, <laughs> that's what it's all about. So the off-market fallacy is like a very insidious thing. And that's not just like, I'm not saying you have to use a broker with that. I'm just saying be aware of that, that from the buyer's perspective, the only reason to do a private deal is to get you for less than what you're worth. Like that's what they're going for. Yeah. I mean, that's always the, I guess, in the back of your mind, you're like, could I get more for this? Could I get more for this? And it's just so, I mean, I think it would be so hard. I mean, if somebody just said, hey, I've got 1.4 million for you right now. Yeah. It's you tough want to, to say no to that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay. You, you start thinking, well, that's a life changing number right there. Um, but if that 1.4, should be 2.4 that's crazy you know it's yeah. like that, that yeah you you need somebody an advocate on your side for sure uh who's in the who's in the weeds on this I, I mean i see it just like anything else in the business if if i'm if i'm a really good at product development and i'm really good at manufacturing sourcing getting products but i'm terrible at advertising you know, maybe I should talk to advertising experts, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. And I can assure you, I am not an expert on mergers and acquisitions. So you'd probably want to have an advocate or somebody working for you for, you know, for the best result in that case. Um, and there's lots of options out in the space <laughs> right now. Uh, but I, it's certain empire flippers is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Kidding>. <laughs> no, it's, it, well, it's interesting to hear, um, you know, the, it's interesting to hear uh, points of view from, from all different aspects of this. I mean, we have aggregators on our show. Uh, you know, like we said, we had, uh, econ brokers on, now we're talking to you. Um, you know, I guess the, the reality is it's gotta be the, it's gotta be the right fit for the, for the yeah. seller. I, no. Just to be clear, because I, I feel like I badmouth <laughs> aggregators, that's no. not my intention. Like, no. I, there are certain cases where you should definitely not use a broker. For example, <laughs> if you need to sell quickly, that is one of the best benefits of going like direct to an aggregator to sell it quick because they, they will most likely get the deal done way better than for us. And sometimes selling quicker actually leads you to more money because say you have an opportunity to use that $1.4 million on a limited time opportunity that can two, three exit very quickly, but you have to act now, right? Like in those cases where speed is of necessity, sometimes you will make way more money. Other times too, like you can build partnerships with them, all sorts of different stuff. So I'm by no means saying broker is a hundred percent right at all. And that's something we'll tell you even too. It's just, it really depends on your goals, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. It sounds like if you're trying to maximize the value of your business right now, that's when a broker is fair. No, not sure. right now, but if you're right. trying to maximize your exit, utilizing a broker would be the way to go. <clears throat> if you're trying to, yeah. Like, I, yeah. I mean, if I got, if I've got an opportunity right now, if I had a million dollars to invest and I've got a hot opportunity, then I could take a million for my business and that's fine. Cause I'm able to turn it in. That makes, that makes a lot of sense in, Right now in the aggregator space, it's really interesting. Uh, obviously, I'm not in that space, but you hear all the, the stories of, of what's going on. But 
what is your perspective on on how that's that aggregator space is moving? Because it looks like a lot of the really early aggregators, the ones who got a ton of investment, a ton of capital, and they were buying up, buying up, buying up. They they had to spend that money, so they're buying it right uh, as many businesses as they can. Seems like they figured out that maybe they didn't have their operations fully in place uh, <laughs> to handle everything that they were buying. And there, a lot of what they bought just started to trickle downwards a little bit. And they had to, it seems like some of them are putting a pause right now. They're trying to get that aspect buttoned up before they continue buying more. And it seems like other aggregators in the space, they've got strong operations. They're, they're, you know, they're buying businesses and growing them and doing really well. How do you, what do you see in that space? I'm sure you guys, I mean, you, you sell to a lot of aggregators and, and right on, on the marketplace. So what, what, what are you seeing from their side? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what you just said there is pretty close to what, what, I, what I see. So like a lot of the aggregators, they come from that MA background. So they're very good with the finance, with the structure, the MA portion of it but they lack a lot of the entrepreneurial skills that got the business to where it is. And I think it for many of them who don't have a lot of like, you know, more scrappy business experience, like being an entrepreneur uh, on their own, they're finding out that spreadsheet bath and forecasting doesn't always work. Right. Like, so like if you're, if you buy a business, uh, you like put the forecast into a spreadsheet, you, you know, eventually just becomes this ridiculous number with the formulas, right? All that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean you're going to get there. Like you have to be good at copywriting, PPC, uh, organic ranking, supply chain, a thousand different things that has nothing to do with this calculation in the formula. You're not taking into account your own skills, right? And so I think a lot of the aggregators have fallen into that trap. Not all of them, obviously. Some of them are doing really, really well. Uh, but even the ones that are doing really well, they often don't have the same scrappiness as that uh, uh, original FBA entrepreneur. They're not willing to do what it what it takes to scale the business up, like what they were, what the own, original owner was willing to do, right? Um, so that's that's some of the issues there. The other thing that aggregators are doing, they're moving a little bit more up market a lot of the time. So above the $10 million range, right, where there's less competition because the new aggregators are all competing in that sub $10 million space. So the ones that are more established are moving up. The other thing aggregators are doing is they're buying the entire ecosystem. Like the smart aggregators are buying the whole ecosystem. So what I mean by that is they're not just buying FBA. They're mm -hmm. buying uh, DDC stores. They're buying 3PL warehouses. They're buying people with retail distribution. Uh, uh, retail distribution channels. Uh, in some cases, like, uh, you know, uh, one of the biggest aggregators, they buy affiliate sites from us and they buy affiliate sites in the niche of their main products. Like if, they, if they're selling, like, say, a dog food product or whatever, they'll buy a dog affiliate website from us as a way to build up a media brand around that uh that business so they're they're buying up the entire ecosystem for the ones that are smart but you are right that a lot of them have stopped buying and they're pausing because they're realizing like e maybe we're not as good at operating these things as we uh initially thought <laughs> i want to touch on that uh buying the the affiliate sites because that that is actually interesting i think there's a play there for a lot of brand owners um because oh, so what are they so they're buying the if it's like a, a an affiliate blog that's in the dog niche, they're buying that uh, that website and then they're just changing all the links to their products 
Is that what they're yeah, doing? Exactly. And exactly. probably their affiliate link too. Right. Yeah. yeah they get a double dip on both the uh, Amazon Associates cookie and the actual margin on the product. Yeah. And we've sold businesses that are come as a package like that. We don't see them as often as before, but they're great. Like, uh, and if an FBA entrepreneur, like say someone's out in the audience who wants to do it and don't want to spend money buying an affiliate site, let me give you a quick tip to like bank on SEO. It's, it's very simple. Uh, I have a lot of SEO friends because that's my background. Uh, so one of the things you can do, like say you were selling a blender on Amazon, something like that, go to Google, type in best blender, best blender reviews, top blender reviews, all that kind of stuff. All top 10, uh, Google searches that will come up will most likely be affiliate websites. Look for one that is somewhat small that like, you know, something that isn't massive, then reach out to the owner and be like, Hey, I would like to be included on this list of top 10. I will pay you say 50 bucks. And a lot of the times you don't even need to send them your product. They'll be like, sure. I'll just change the link because there's no skin off their back. Like whatever, I'll just change the link and like write up a little thing and boom, there it is. And then you can do yeah. another thing where you reach out to them like, hey, for I like I see you have all these like individual blender reviews are ranking that are my competitors. When like when if I paid you like a thousand bucks to go and at the end of each of those articles have a CTA of some sort that leads to my individual review on your website or just a link to mine, like say like, Hey, I think this blender deserves more of your attention or whatever. So that's a really easy way to tap into the SEO world without you doing any SEO. You can't build a media brand off that, which is what I really recommend you do. That's what like the aggregators buying these affiliate websites are doing. They're building email lists and stuff, but that's a very cheap way for you to get into some of that action. That's an interesting play. Yeah. I'm already right. doing it. That's, I'm doing it right now. This is great. That's a great play. Uh, I mean, I've yeah. seen, you, you see that in other industries. I, I see this all the time. I mean, there's this whole other business model of, you know, creating a website if you're an affiliate marketer and like, you know, let's say it's like bouncy houses in Kansas city, you know, you like create this website and then, and then you you're selling that traffic to a bouncy house yeah. company. And yeah, Legion. Legion yeah, so it's really that that's a an, an unique play for branders because a lot of those guys, you're right. What do they care what what the affiliate link is? It's going to Amazon. It's good, you yeah. know. And and they're probably <laughs> glad someone reached out because um, it's the, the uh, uh, if you look into the mattress space, they do this stuff all the time. So if you type in uh, like a Sealy mattress or something like that. Pretty much all of you see on the first page of Google is them, but they don't want you to know it's them. So because like they'll like go to these people. Like I have a friend, he used to have a mattress website and as an affiliate and they would literally pay him like $10,000 a month just to put his thing number one. And they would also run like three, $4,000 a month of Google AdWords traffic to his review where he could still collect the affiliate commission off of the traffic that they're sending. Cause their idea was like, we want to be everywhere, but we don't want to look like it's just us saying all of this. So they'll like go and recruit these other people to create these branded uh, websites all around. So it's, it's a very similar concept there. Uh, one other trick you can do if you're running ads for your FBA site is go to those affiliate sites that say yes to you and ask them if you can do a pixel share, which is, uh, I believe, still totally allowable on Facebook. Uh, and that way you can now run ads to their actual target audience that visits their website. I think we need to have you on, Greg, for a whole nother podcast. I'm a marketing nerd. Yeah. <laughs> well, does this add to the evaluation? Like, if I've done this and I've got all these links that are going to my Amazon listing, like, how do I prove that? How would I prove that to a buyer? Like, hey, look, I also have done 
all this blog article, SEO stuff, like that's mm-hmm. got to have some sort of value. It does. Yeah, it does. Um, so it, like that is what we call a, a, you know, traffic diversification, right? So the more diverse your traffic is in a meaningful way, like if it's like 5%, it's not going to have very, you know, big effects, but if it's like 20, 30% that can have a, a serious effect, especially if the, like the Amazon side is doing very healthy as well. Cause what you, what's happening here is like, okay, if I'm not ranking in Amazon anymore, no big deal. Cause I still got this 30% of SEO traffic coming in that my competitors don't have. Or like, hey, I have these relationships. So every time I launch a new product, guess what? I can get SEO traffic coming to my new product, which is like the most in like commercially intent viable traffic on earth to rank my products really quick. Amazon loves seeing SEO traffic. Like there's an argument to be made that SEO specifically benefits the traffic, uh, uh, your like organic uh, product on Amazon better. But I think it's because SEO traffic also just converts the best out of any traffic. And so that just like triggers the algorithm better for Amazon. But uh, yes, it would increase your valuation for sure. Cool. That is interesting. All right, Greg, we're running up on uh, a little bit of time crunch here. <laughs> Sorry, I got, I got, no, this is great. We can talk all day on this. I've got one last question for you. Sure. Uh, Ruben had a question in here. Uh, I'm going to reframe it and, and see, because it's interesting to me. Do you see a lot, are, are you selling businesses through empire flippers so the buyer buys it improves the business and then resells it through empire flippers for a higher multiple is that common do you see that a lot yeah uh so that's where we get the second part of our name from is uh the flippers we call them flipper freds uh, i've seen the same business sold on our marketplace four Wait, times what was it flipper freds yeah flipper freds <laughs> that's awesome. buy low sell high they're like the uh, 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 real estate flippers, you know, house flippers. Same same concept. Yeah, yeah I've seen the same business sold four times. Four times. Four In times, what time yes. frame? Like once a year? Over over a period of, uh, I think it was over a period of like two and a half, three and a half years. So this is one of the secrets about buying businesses. A lot of people don't realize. Like to sell a business, you usually have to have like 24, 36 months of data. You don't need that at all when you buy a business because when you buy a business, it already has that data. So you can sell a business a lot faster if you bought it than if you built it. So I have a whole concept called Asset Flywheel, which I probably don't have time to get into. That's all about this concept of snowballing assets through this. But uh, like the, one of the funniest stories I've seen is this guy has a small affiliate website. And I don't, I'm not recommending anyone do this because I've never seen it happen again. It's very risky. I want to recommend it. But this guy, it was a, a, like a $104,000 affiliate website. It was like tons of competition for it. And so he got it. And then he was like, hey, that seemed like it was pretty tough for me to get. Is there anyone interested uh, in still buying this site? And we're like, yo, yeah, there's a lot of people interested. And you're like, okay, uh, I'll sell it to them for 115 k like, uh, okay, so we'll reach out to all the people there, right? So we haven't even transferred this site over yet, mind you. Like, we're just starting the migration process. We just got the money in. He's owned this site for like 20 minutes, basically. He's made 15K off of it by selling <laughs> it to another person, right? But you can never do that with a business built from scratch. But if you build a, if you buy a business, you can definitely do it. Because it's not like all that history goes away just because you happen to own it for 10 minutes, right? Uh, but again, I've never seen that happen again. So I really want to recommend that. But it's a really funny story that's okay chris we got a lot of new side hustle yeah, let's pull our let's pull our money together just keep <laughs> buying come on, come on into the marketplace <laughs> oh my gosh all right well great everyone who's listening right now uh if they're if they're ready to to move in this direction to exit or buy or whatever their goal is how do they get in touch with you how can they start working with you at empire flippers sure 
Sure. So uh, empireflippers.com, if you want to see what your valuation worth, uh, or what, what your business is, we have an automated valuation tool, just empireflippers.com slash valuation tool. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me personally, it's just greg at empireflippers.com, or you can add me on LinkedIn, uh, just Gregory Elfrink there. I think my LinkedIn URL is like Greg the Writer or something like that, because I write a lot. Um, but yeah, I'm usually pretty open if uh, anyone has any questions. Always always down to help or try to put, push you towards someone who can help you, I think. Excellent. Well, everyone go check them out. Empireflippers.com. Greg, this has been really fun. We are going to get you back on because we're going to talk about other stuff next time. All these little <laughs> SEO hacks that you've got. That's invaluable. I'd love to pick your brain on those kinds of things. Sure. As well. it, yeah. uh, I think the well, some of the most powerful things is combining two unrelated things because uh, no one does it. And now you're operating kind of in a blue ocean, right? Yeah. I love it. I'll be doing some of that later this afternoon. <laughs> I love that. Uh, sure. All right. Thanks, Greg. That's been a lot of fun. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, if you like content like this, uh, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. You can also see our live streams on all of Solozo's social media platforms, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook. They're all there. So you can uh, watch the live stream. Uh, additionally, if uh, advertising on Amazon is uh, a struggle for you or you're not getting the results that you're looking for, we can help you at Solozo. Go to solozo.com. You can book a demo. Uh, Chris, or, Chris or myself will walk you through the platform, show you how Solozo can help optimize all of your advertising campaigns that you're running and launch the most uh, strategic campaign structures to get you to your goals. So again, solozo.com and book a demo. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks, Greg, for joining us. We'll see you next time.